0: Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. How are y'all doing today? I am glad to be here with you this morning. If you would, please go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter twelve and look to verses fifty-seven to fifty-nine. Luke twelve fifty-seven to fifty-nine. If you do not have a Bible with you, all right now, go ahead and look down uh, towards your feet, underneath the rows that are in front of you. We have Bibles in baskets underneath the probably towards the middle of the aisle, but we have Bibles and, and baskets. So if you do not have one, go ahead and grab one. You're gonna need it. We're gonna uh, spend our time in God's Word walking through it. Um, and again, if you do not have a Bible, we say this pretty often, but if you don't have your own, go ahead and take one of these home with you and keep it. Write your name in it. We want you to spend time in God's Word at home. So if you don't have one, just take it. It's yours. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Josh Seal, I am one of the pastors here at the Field Church, and uh, from time to time, I have the opportunity to deliver God's word to our people. It's a privilege, it's a blessing, it's an honor to, to have this time. Um, and so I'm just grateful to be here, I pray that, that uh, as we go through it, that I'll be faithful to God's word, and, and we'll, we'll learn something here today, okay? Um, before we actually get into our text, I'd like us to go through our, our monthly TFC memory verse. We do this monthly, uh, we have a different memory verse. This month, we have multiple verses. Um, but that's okay. It's just more to memorize, more to, to meditate on. We, are, we have Psalm 63, verses one through four. Psalm 63, one through four. So what I'm gonna do is uh, we're gonna read this maybe a couple times together. We're gonna recite it together, and then I'm gonna say a few things about it, kind of explain a few points on it, and then we'll move on to our text today, okay? So if y'all would, go ahead and look on the screen. Let's rec- next week, Pastor Sam will probably take it away, but um, we'll have it up here. For today, okay? Let's recite it together. O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. All right, let's read it one more time. And as we do, let's go a little bit slower and focus on these points. As you're reading it, kind of pray that this would actually be true in your life. This is why we do it. This is why we memorize it. We want this to be true in our lives, that as we say, oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. You wanna ask yourself, is that actually what I'm doing? Do I mean what I'm saying? Do I mean what I'm memorizing? So let's recite it again. Let's go a little bit slower. Oh God, you are my God I'm so grateful that we actually do this as a church family. That we memorize God's word together. That we hide this in our hearts. It's what a blessing it is. We have God's word so available to us that we we often forget how important it is to memorize God's word. But as we do, I just want I want to go through and I want to say a few points uh, from here from Psalm 63. These verses. There's a lot more that go with it. I think it's a total of um, let's see, 11 or 14. It's, it's multiple verses. There's a lot of verses in here, but. Uh, from here, I'm gonna just talk on verses one through four and really just kind of explain why Paul wrote this. I mean, why uh, David wrote this. This is a Psalm from David. He's writing to God as he is in the wilderness of Ju- Judah. He, so the question we need to ask is, why is he in the wilderness of Judah? And when we get to that question, we understand that he's actually in the wilderness of Judah because he's being chased out by his own son, Absalom. His own son hates his father. He wants to kill his father and he wants to take the, the throne from his father. So he's chased him out. He has a bunch of people that are with him that are backing him up and he's attacking his own father. So David is out in the wilderness of Judah as his son is trying to kill him. And we see this in Second Samuel 15. We won't read it, but it, on your own time, go, go there and read it. Read Psalm, uh, 2 Samuel 15. David is in, in Judah, the wilderness of Judah, because his son, his own son wants to kill him. David has made clear that Absalom is not going to be the king his other son Solomon is going to be king. And Absalom did not like that. So he's chasing his father. He's trying to take kingship by force. And this is what David prays in light of why he's in the wilderness of Judah. He only really prays for one thing. You'd think that maybe he'd pray for protection or or victory, but he doesn't pray for that. He's praying for one main thing. He's praying that He would have God himself. That's what he wants. His desire, in light of the situation, he's praying for God. That's why he says in the very beginning, oh God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary place, as we see in verse one. He's saying, oh God, you are my God. You're all I want. I'm in the wilderness, yeah. My own son wants to kill me, Yeah but he still wants God. He's earnestly, genuinely seeking God. That's what he wants. And then verse two, he says, why? Yeah, oh, I'm in Isaiah right now, I'm sorry. (laughs) I was like, that does not sound right. Um, Psalm 63, this is what it says in verse two. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. As I've already said, he's in uh, the wilderness in Judah and he's, he's being chased by his own son. And in light of that situation, he's praying in the sense of that he would have God and that even if he were to die, even if someone were to kill him, even if his own son were to kill him, it doesn't matter. God's better than life. That's what he's saying here in verse two. He wants God over all. He's searching and seeking God over all. If, even if he were to die, it's okay. He's better than life. Having communion with God is better than life. And and he's saying also in there that he's, he misses the power and glory of, of coming together with the people of God in Jerusalem. He's not in Jerusalem, but that was where he was, and that was the place where they worshiped together with all the people. He misses that, the power and the glory of God, and he's longing for that day. If we would only be a people that, that actually long for communing with believers in church just like that, is that ask yourself is that true? Is that true of your life? Do you actually long to be with the body of Christ in church on on Sundays where we're actually praising God, singing to God every day, or is it just something that you'll come to eventually and get to it time and time again? David misses that. He's in the wilderness, and he longs to be with the people of God, to sing and to praise and to study his word together. That's what he's longing for, even in light of his own son trying to kill him. And then in verse three, Verse three, we see because, uh, because your steadfast love is better in life, like I said, he's saying, it's okay if I die. It's okay, I'm gonna be with the Lord. That's what I want. I want him. And then in verse four, at the end of verse three, he says, my lips will still praise you. And then in verse four, our last part of our memory verse, he says, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. It also brings, brings to my mind of the time of, of Job. Y'all know the, the story of Job. Job, he lost everything, right? And people, and even his own wife, they were encouraging him to just curse God and get it over with. But Job, he, he sits there and he praises God, even in light of all that he has lost. This is essentially what, what David is doing here. He is he's not in Jerusalem. His own son wants to kill him and take his throne. And this is his response to it. He's just praising God, praying to God, he wants God, he says, doesn't matter how long I live. However long I live, I'm still going to praise you. I'm still going to bless you. I'm still going to raise my hands to you, almighty God. It's far better than even the throne that I have, is what he's saying. So ask yourself, as we go through these verses, in verse one, oh God, you are my God. my God. Earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. When you ask yourself that, is that true in your life? Do you genuinely seek after God? Is he someone, is he who you thirst for when you wake up? Is he who you thirst for when you go to sleep? Do you have a hunger for God or is he just a byproduct? Is it true of your life? In the second verse too, same thing. Do you long to be in the sanctuary? Do you long to commune with the bodies, the body of Christ, the believers and praise God? Is this something that you long for week to week? Do you, do you enjoy the community that you have with the believers? Is, is, Living with God, is that better than life here on earth or is life here on earth what you long for the most? And then, do you genuinely mean it when you say it, that you'll praise God all the days of your life, that you'll lift your hands to him all the days of your life? Is that true of your life? So ask yourself, I ask myself that as I'm I'm memorizing this. I want that to be true. I pray that that will be true. Jesus said that previously in Luke, to deny yourself and take up your cross. It's not a suggestion. It's not saying if you want to, He's saying, that's the way of life. If you're a true disciple of Christ, you will do that. And David is showing that through his prayer that that's all he longs for, that's all he wants. So that's all I have to say about it. I just want to cut it off there. And and it's a beautiful psalm, memorize it. Have your kids memorize it. Recite it before you go to bed, wake up and read it. Memorize it, it's good, we need it. We need to be reminded about those things. Well, let's look at our text today. Luke chapter 12. We're going to actually we're going to read from uh, from our verses from last week. We're going to start from verse 54 and then we're going to go to 59, okay? Our text today is 57 to uh, to 59, but we're going to read a few more verses. All right, starting in verse 54. Follow along with me. He also said to the crowds, "When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming." And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be a scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Now for our text today, verse 57. And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right as you go with your accuser before the magistrate? Make an effort to settle with him on the way lest he drag you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. So what we're seeing today from our text is we're seeing a failure to recognize their guilt before God. They're failing to to interpret their guilt before God interpret the threat. They're failing to really see the threat that it's, that's at hand. That's what we're seeing in our text today. And we're gonna go through and we're gonna really pick it apart and we're gonna see why that's what Jesus is saying with this parable. And last week is also very much pertaining to what we're, we're seeing this week in our text. there are parables that Jesus is, is saying one and then the other, they go hand in hand. But last week, Pastor Sam showed us as he was going through, he showed us from verses 54 to 56, there was a failure to interpret the time They claimed to be looking for the Messiah. They said they were, but in their hypocrisy, they truly weren't. They didn't want him. They were rejecting him. This was the time when God's Christ was right in front of them. The time where prophecies were being fulfilled in Jesus' life on earth, they they still refused him no matter what he was doing. They rejected him. They rejected God's Christ. And in response to this, Jesus gives us our text. He says, you're rejecting me, but also you're failing to see the threat that's at hand. You're guilty before a holy God, and if you've been through us any time at all through the Book of Luke, you know that they have time and time again done the same thing. They've rejected him, they've persecuted him, they've ridiculed him. They've even said that the things that he's doing, the signs that he is doing, he's doing by the power of Beelzebul or by the power of Satan. If you remember that, they're trying to to downgrade and, and belittle Jesus. They're trying to show that he's not who he says he is. They're rejecting the Christ the Messiah, as well as failing to understand and interpret the threat that's at hand, their guilt before a holy God. And, and also we see this in the New Testament. It's not new to, to that day. It's not new to the Jews. It's not new uh, to us even. In the Old Testament, uh, the Israelites, they were a rebellious and stiff-necked people. If we look at Isaiah 65, it'll be up on the screen, but this is a, this is a, a response, God's response Isaiah, he writes a prayer out in, verses, uh, in Isaiah 63, verses seven through 64, 12. Isaiah has a prayer that he writes out and his, his prayer is on behalf of the faithful remnant of God's people. He's praying for God's mercy on them and God gives a response to this. And I wanna show you why, why I have this out here. It does pertain to our text and last week's text. Isaiah 65, one through six says, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in the gardens and making offerings on bricks who sit in tombs and spend the night in, a, in secret places, who eat pigs' flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself. Do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap. As we're seeing in our text today, they are failing to uh, interpret the threat to see their guilt before a holy God. Before that, in last week's passage, they failed to interpret the time where the Messiah was right before them. And this prophecy is also repeated and quoted by the Apostle Paul. We're gonna see that in a little bit, but the reason why I have this here is look at this text. In the very beginning, in the first, verse one, he says that he's being sought by those who didn't seek him. These are people who actually were not his people. Those who were his people, they were following their own devices. They were, they were wise in their own eyes. He said, here I am to a nation that didn't want him. And then he goes on and says that his own people, the people that he, I spread out my hands all the day long to are rebellious people, he says, who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. They, they were wise in their own eyes. They weren't following God's ways. And they provoked him to his face continually, sacrificing in gardens and on bricks. I, uh, I just see that through reading through this text that they, are, they were superficially seeking God. I'm not gonna insult anyone's intelligence. I know we probably know what the word superficial is. I just Googled it, Googled it and came with a, a basic definition. But the basic definition I came to was, it's, uh, superficial is an appearance to be true or real only until examined more closely not thorough or deep or complete, not having or showing any depth of character or understanding. It's, it's on the skin, it's on the surface, it's, it's false, it's fake. When you actually look closely at it, you see that it's not genuine. In our text today, Jesus says to them, why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? And then he goes through and shows that you are guilty. You are guilty before a holy God. They're failing to see that. And Isaiah 65 is saying that these people failed to see that. I wanna show just briefly what, what these verses are, are talking about. Verse one, we already understand that God is saying that they did not seek after him. He, he was giving himself to people who actually uh, didn't seek him. Verse two says, the follow, uh, they followed their own guidance, as we saw. They were, they were wise in their own eyes, verse, is what we saw in verse two. They were following their own devices. And the sacrifices and offerings that we see in verse three where they were sacrificing in the gardens and on the bricks. These sacrifices that were being done in the gardens and the bricks, gardens were very much commonplace for people to sacrifice to false gods for fertility. And they were saying, you know what? It doesn't matter. It's not that big of a deal. We have to make the sacrifice so we're gonna go ahead and do it. It's superficial. It's not genuine. and, And also on the bricks, The where they were supposed to make sacrifices was on stone that had not been crafted by man's tools. It had not been whittled by man. It wasn't man-made. And so they were still, we see that in Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 27 and Joshua 8, God is clear about how they were to make sacrifices. And then verse 4, we see that they spent nights in the tombs. They slept there. They in secret places. That's verse 4. But this was a a sign of like necromancy, is what they were doing. They were they were seeking to to get guidance, spiritual guidance from the dead. That's what they were looking for, spiritual guidance from the dead. And then also with that verse, they were eating food that was sacrificed to idols, that was tainted meat and broth. They were eating food that was sacrificed to idols because they didn't really care about all this this false God stuff. They were superficially seeking the Lord. As we see in our text, they can't interpret the threat. They aren't interpreting the threat correctly. And then verse five, we see, keep to yourself, they say. Keep to yourself. Do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. He says, I am too holy. They think of themselves in this holy elitist mentality of I am too good. I am too holy. There's no way you can compare to me. And that's why Jesus is saying that they failure to interpret the threat because they think that they are not accused, as we see in our text. Paul quotes this as well as quoting Moses in Romans 10, 19 through 21. First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. They are not looking for the Christ. We saw this last week. They they were failing to interpret the time. They didn't see the Messiah that was right in front of them. And just like today... They are failing to interpret the, te- the, the threat that they have. they have. They have failed to see their guilt. The Jews, uh, even, even in Paul's they were still in the same road. They were still in the same path where they had this holy elitist mentality. Remember, they're, they're constantly rejecting Christ because Jesus is telling them that they are guilty. He's telling them that they are sinners. He's telling them that they do need to repent. He's telling them that I am the Messiah. I'm right before you. And right here he's saying that you you are guilty. You do have a threat against you. You are accused. Settle with your accuser. They have failed to see their guilt. Just as we saw last week, that they failed to see the Messiah. And they failed to accept the Messiah. They rejected him. They were spiritually blind in their self-righteous pride and hypocrisy. They did not see themselves as poor in spirit or prisoners or blind or oppressed. Pastor Sam asked me to preach for the very first time a while back on Luke chapter four. It was the first time that I ever preached here and um, it was a good one, so I want us to go back to it. (laughs) I'm just kidding. But uh, it was not as good. Um, But anyways, let's go back to Luke chapter four for real. And uh, I want us to see a couple of things in there that actually do shed light on their mindset and why they are not seeing their guilt. Luke chapter four, look to verse 16. We're gonna read to verse 21. It says, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogues on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus came and he, he preached and then he explained it and he said that before your very eyes, this prophecy has been fulfilled. He's talking to people in the synagogue, Pharisees, lawyers, Jews. He's talking to them and he's saying, this prophecy has been fulfilled before you. And then he goes on to, to quote a proverb to them that they will quote back to him. He said, surely you will say this to me, heal yourself. And then this is where It flips like a switch. They're talking well of him. They're speaking well of him. Hey, is this not the son of Joseph? Don't we know him? Didn't he grow up here? And then Jesus says a few other things and they want to kill him. They're speaking well of him and then they want him dead. Later on, we're not gonna read it, but if you go down uh, to verses 25 to the end of that little section, Jesus talks about the time of Elijah and Elisha. There was a famine during the time of Elijah. Elijah. And he didn't go to Israel. He didn't go to any of them, but he went to this woman in Sidon, who was a Gentile. She was not a Jew. She was a Gentile. And then he goes on to the account of Elisha, where there was people full of leprosy in, in the, uh, uh, Israel and all the Jews, and they had a lot of people full of leprosy, but he didn't go to any of them except for another Gentile. And in saying that, he, he offended them because he was saying, that God's divine grace is going to be withheld to you because you do not see the threat. You believe yourself to be holy. You believe yourself to be good. You believe yourself to be innocent of any guilt. And when, they, when he said that to them, that it will go to those who are the poor in spirit, who are blind, who are the oppressed, the ones who understand their need for saving, the ones that understand their need for salvation, that's where God's divine grace is gonna go. They were super offended because they said, essentially what we saw in Isaiah 65, I'm too holy for you. Do not come near me. And that's what we're seeing. They're failing to see the threat. They're failing to see the threat. They became so angry with him that they wanted to kill him. And eventually they will. They refused last week, like we saw, to acknowledge God's Christ. And this week they refused uh, to acknowledge the threat. They, they had plenty of evidence. There, it's not like they were lacking evidence. In Luke chapter 10, 23, through 24, Jesus says this to his disciples. They were a privileged generation. This was what kings and prophets longed for. They longed for this day. They didn't wanna miss it. They wanted to see the Messiah. They wanted to see this grace that, that was prophesied about. In, Isaiah, in Luke 10, 23 through 24, it says, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and to hear it. They longed for that. Kings like David, prophets like Elijah and Elisha, they longed for these days. They wanted to see it. They wanted to see the Messiah. And then when it comes to the day when the Messiah comes, the religious elite, those who hold themselves so highly, reject him because they think that they have no guilt. They think that they're already right. They think that they're righteous, but Jesus was coming telling them that they were not, that they have an accuser. They are accused before a holy God and they need to settle with their accuser. The Apostle Paul says this, though he had done many signs before them, they still did not believe him. In John 12, 37, though he had done many signs before them, they still did not believe him. They rejected him. That's a scary thing. Privileged generation that had the very Messiah living among them, who was telling them that there is a threat to repent from, to turn to a holy God, they were rejecting that. They didn't want it. In today's text, like I said, we, we see a failure to interpret the threat, the threat of our guilt, the world's guilt before a holy God. We are all guilty. And he was telling the crowds that. There was about, if you remember, in chapter 12, verse 1, Jesus, as he's going to talk to people, it says that there are thousands of people, thousands. So when he's saying these things, he's addressing thousands of people. There scholars believe that there were close to 10,000 people there. There's a lot. And Jesus is saying that you're guilty. You're all guilty. I'm sorry, I'm telling you this because there is grace. There is forgiveness. You just have to understand that you are guilty. You have to settle with your accuser. There was a threat of refusing to repent and be reconciled to God through believing in God's Christ. The threat of not seeing one's own guilt before a holy God. The threat of Judgment. Both of these parables, both from 54 to 59, have great spiritual truths that we cannot miss. We have to see it, so we have to hone into the text and see what it's truly telling us. And ver- let's, read, let's read our text one more time, maybe a couple more times. We'll read it a couple more times. Verse 57, starting in verse 57 And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way lest he drag you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and the officer will put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. This is a warning Jesus is giving. He's, he's showing them there is a threat, that there is a guilt. He's saying, don't delay. Don't, don't say I'll get to it when I get to it. I'm gonna give us an analogy in a second that's gonna kind of help paint a picture. But as we see this, he's saying, as you go with your accuser, in verse 58, as you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and the officer put you in prison. This is serious. He's saying, act now, You, you can't delay. This is urgent. This is very, very serious. Don't delay, don't say I'll get to it when I get to it. And he's saying, also, by the way, you think you're not guilty, but you are. You are accused. I want us to imagine for a second that you're driving. You're driving and there's somebody who's in the passenger seat with you and you fall asleep at the wheel. And before you know it, you're in the opposite lane going head on towards another vehicle about 70 miles an hour. What do you think your is gonna do if they're not asleep? They're gonna say, wake up. Get up, get back in the lane. We're about to die. It's urgent. Move. If you don't, we're going to die. Or just say you did get in an accident, you didn't get in the lane in time, and you somehow survived, but your femoral artery is, is severed. You're starting to bleed out, but they get you to the doctor in time. You're on the, the operating table. The doctor is going to say, We need to operate right this second. If we don't, they're going to die. It's urgent. There's no, no time to delay. Or say your house is on fire, but your whole family's asleep. A firefighter that comes to the scene is gonna kick that door in. They're gonna come in yelling, telling you to get out of the house right now. Because if you don't, this whole house is gonna burn down around you and kill your whole family. Those are urgent, urgent things. And those are just world situations. They happen all the time. We don't know when they're gonna happen, but they happen all the time. It would be absolutely ludicrous to think that, you're driving or there's a firefighter. Say, let's go with that one first. The firefighter is at your house. There's no way this firefighter is gonna come up to a burning house, knock on your door and say, "'Excuse me, have you noticed your house is on fire?' You wanna get out, maybe pack a bag, take your time. He's not gonna do that. (laughs) It's ridiculous. Same thing with the doctor. He's not gonna have somebody bleeding out on the operating table and say, "'Hey, it's time for my break. "'I'm gonna go take a 30-minute break. "'You gonna be okay?' He's not gonna do that. It's ridiculous. The passenger, the same thing. He's gonna wake you up, punch you or something and tell you to wake up because if not, all those situations result in death. They're dire, they're, they're urgent. Jesus is making this clear to them in our text that wake up, you believe that you're not guilty. You believe that you're not accused. He said, but guess what? You're not judging rightly. Just like you have not interpreted the time, just like you have not seen that the Messiah is standing before you, you also have not seen that you are guilty. You have an accuser. He's he's already accused you. That's what he's saying here. There was a a refusal to repent and be reconciled to God. That is our first and only point. He is a, a refusal to repent and be reconciled to God. They didn't identify their guilt. They didn't see their guilt. They didn't see their need for saving. Remember, like I said, he's speaking to thousands of people. So everything that he's saying, he's saying to everyone, all the people that are present, And this is obviously in reference to everybody in the world. This is for everyone. No one is perfect. No one is innocent. There's thousands of people that he's talking to. Look at verse 57. He says, and why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? This is the second question within these two parables that tie together. Last week, as Pastor Sam showed us, it was the first question. He ended on a question. How do you, why do you not know how to interpret the time, the present time? And this one, he starts with the question and everything preceding follows it. So as we look at it, what does this question mean? He's saying, why do you not judge for yourself what is right? He's telling them that you are not judging rightly. You have missed it. You're judging yourself as holy, but you're not. He's saying, you have missed the mark. You have completely misinterpreted the threat that's at hand. You think that there is nothing that you are judged for. You think that you don't have an accuser. So who is the accuser? It's the law, God's law. I'm gonna show you in some text here of how we know this. In verse, we already understood that verse 57, Jesus is asking them a rhetorical question in a sense. He's saying, you are not judging yourself rightly. You are not saying that you are guilty. You believe that you're not. And then in verse 58, look at verse 58. As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way Lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. This accuser is the law, is God's law, God's holy and perfect law. I'm going to show you how we know this in just a little bit. We're going to see. But how I know that this is is not just in reference to, to some basic lawsuit between your neighbor. Because I know he says, settle with your accuser. Many would say, well, this is a lawsuit between somebody that he's wronged. He's maybe stolen something from, him, but no, it's not that. It's, it's much different. This is an eternal warning, a warning of, of what's to come. We know this because of the following passage in chapter 13, verse one through nine. If you remember, Pastor Sam has explained to us from chapter 12, verse one, all the way to 13, verse nine, this is a big sermon that Jesus is teaching through a lot of things. All of this is connected And so after this parable, Jesus goes straight into this where it says there were some present at that very time. That's what we see in 13 verse one. There were some present at that very time. So at that very time, while Jesus is teaching in in chapter 13 verse one, he goes in to say this. We're not going to cover it all. But anyways, Jesus essentially says twice. This is how we know this is in reference to much more than just a lawsuit between your neighbor. This is in reference to the guilt that you have before a holy God, and there is a judgment day. Because in chapter thirteen, he says twice he answers to them as they're questioning him about those that have died. He answers to them and says, "No, unless you repent, you will likewise perish." They were questioning him about those that have died in some uh, some horrible ways. They were saying uh, maybe they were more sinful than the rest, and Jesus says, "No, no." but unless you repent. He's not even addressing those that have died. He's addressing those that are still living. They have to repent from something. There is a guilt that they have. That's what he's pointing out in this text and in the following text, there is guilt. You are all guilty. We are all guilty. And that's that's what Jesus is pointing out in this parable, that they're missing it. They're missing the threat that's at hand. He says, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish in chapter 13. So the question that we saw is is clear. And then in verse uh, 58, we see that there is an accuser. You've heard it said, Jesus said this in, in Matthew chapter five. He said this in Matthew chapter five. To those who believe that they're holy. He was correcting their misunderstanding of the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said in, the, in, in those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. They didn't judge rightly because they thought that they were upholding every single one of God's law. They were not judging for themselves rightly. They were not seeing the guilt that was right before them. They were self-righteous and they were prideful and they were delving into their hypocrisy, thinking that this is the way of life. I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. That's what they kept on saying. And so as I already said, we say that they are accused. There is an accuser. They are guilty. There is a threat that they're missing. So who is the accuser? We've already covered it's the law. Jesus says this in John 5, 45 to 47. There's Pharisees and lawyers and uh, Jews that are coming to him. They're asking him all these questions. They're trying to challenge him and, and catch him in, in some kind of fault. And he says this in John five forty five to 47. Do not think that I will accuse you to the father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? If you're honestly judging yourself, if they were honestly judging themselves rightly, they would see that they are already accused. They claim to believe Moses. They claim to follow his teachings. Moses' writings, by the way, are referred to the law. That's how we get that, we understand that this accuser is the law of God. In Romans 7, it's it's referred to and explained to be completely holy and perfect. There is nothing wrong with God's law. That is why we are guilty, because we cannot uphold that. We cannot live according to it. We cannot make it on our own terms. It's impossible, impossible. Paul lays this out very clearly through the book of Romans. In Romans chapter one, he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He ends by explaining uh, in chapter one that God's wrath is going to be poured out on the unrighteous, those who are immoral, those who reject God and do not acknowledge God for who he truly is. There is a wrath to come. There is a judgment. There is a threat. That's what he keeps saying. He keeps reiterating it over and over again in chapter one. And of course, during this time, the Jews would read that and say, yeah, oh, absolutely, amen, praise God, you're right. They are guilty. They are immoral. They are sinful. They are in need of judgment. And Paul says, hold up, wait up. I know I just gave you this laundry list of things, but you're not innocent yourself. He goes in chapter two to explain that. In Romans two twelve, he says, all who have sinned under the law will be judged under the law. The Jews would be saying things like this, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of, good, of all that I have. This would have been their mindset. We see that in Luke 18 as well, where there's this tax collector that is wailing because he sees his guilt. He sees the threat that's before him. He's repentant and he, he hates his guilt. He wants God to save him. He wants God's grace. But then there's this uh, religious person, a Jew over next to him that says, God, thank you that I'm not like this person. I'm good. I tithe every week. I'm perfect. I'm holy. They're missing it. They're missing it. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. There's the accuser. The law it accuses you because we cannot uphold the law. We cannot stand to the law. There's no possible way. Then in chapter three, Paul says this. He says, what then... Are we, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Romans three nineteen 3, 19 uh, through 12. The entire world, he says, no one, not one. Not that there are some, he says not one. No one is is innocent. All have turned aside, all have gone astray. The entire world is guilty. This is what Jesus is saying. You're not judging rightly for yourself. You're not seeing the guilt that is right before you. You are already accused by the law. You have been accused. And then in Romans 3, 19 through 20, Paul continues and goes and says this. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who, who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Again, there's the accuser, the law through the law comes knowledge of sin. You're, it's made clear that you are accused by the law. You and I, the Jews, everybody that was present, the 10,000 people that were there, Jesus was saying, everyone is accused by the law. Paul is saying that same very thing. And he says, not part of the world. He's saying the whole world is accountable to God. God is holy, we are not. The accuser is the law. It is holy and perfect, and no one can fit that description. The only one that ever lived up to that standard is Jesus Christ himself, and he's God incarnate. That's why he is able to do that, because he's God in the flesh. He could uphold it, because he's perfect. It's all about him. Anyways, and then in that verse, verse 58 we see the accuser, the law, the one who has accused you, that has made clear to you and to them that they are guilty, that we are guilty, that we are all guilty. And he says, this accuser is going to bring you before the magistrate. The magistrate's not a very common word. I know you probably can, we, we all could say, yeah, it's someone important, obviously. But the magistrate, the word, the Greek word for that is pronounced "arkon," And what this word means is that this is a ruler or a commander, a chief, A king, that's what this word means. A ruler, a commander, a chief, a king. He is the king. He is the top dog. He is the one in charge. He is the one that makes the decisions. So the accuser, the law, is going to bring you before the magistrate. Don't delay. There is a judgment day. Don't say, hey, I got time. You are already heading in that direction. You are already guilty. That's what he's saying here. The magistrate is the king, and and he's saying that he will judge you. He, bring, he will bring you before the magistrate, the ruler, the king. You're heading that way, whether you believe it or not is what he's saying. You, you think that you're good. You think that you're not guilty. You're heading, Guess what? You're heading in that direction. And then in Matthew 25, 40 through 41, this is what we see. And the king will answer them. That's the magistrate. There it is, the ruler. The king will answer this. He will say this. Truly I say to you, As you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. This is a picture of the judgment seat of God. The accuser of the law has already accused you and you will be going before the king, God. That's what he's saying. He's saying, you're all guilty, you're gonna be going before the king. It's a warning. This is urgent. Don't, don't take this lightly, is what he's saying. This, this judgment day, this analogy or this picture, this parable of, of a lawsuit of a courtroom, of, of there's an accuser and there's a, a, some guilt and there's a king and there's, there's a judge and there's an officer and then there's this prison. All of this coming together is to show that this, there is a judgment day and there is a payment to be made is what he's saying. Romans 14, 10 through 12 says, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. I'm gonna read that last part again. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Not that It's not on your parents' It's not on your children. They can't give an account for you. Just like he was telling the Jews, nobody can give an account for you. The priests can't give an account for you. The Pharisees can't give an account for you. Your parents can't give an account for you. Abraham, from the line that you came from, cannot give an account for you. That's what he's saying. They cannot. It's impossible. It's on you. You will give an account to God. You will stand before God on this judgment day. That's what he's saying. It's coming. You are accused. You're gonna be before the magistrate. As we see in verse 58, he says, make an effort to settle with him on the way. This is an urgent, make an effort. Settle with your accuser. You're guilty. You gotta see this, that that it's urgent. There's a need, a dire need. As we saw from those, those, those other analogies that I gave, that there was imminent death was going to happen and it needed to be dealt with immediately. There was no time to delay. Then he says that in verse 58, keep, keep with me. Accusers before the magistrate make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge. And the judge hand you over to the officer. So let's look at those two. The judge is simply saying the one who has authority to make a final decision. That's what the judge is. The one who has authority to make the final decision, the final decision account, the final call, saying, guilty as charged, Give him, put him in prison, lock him away till he pays every last penny. That's what he's saying here. The officer uh, is, is essentially a bailiff, is what he's referring to. is just giving this analogy once again that they, you are going to be taken to prison and you will pay for your account. You will pay for your sins. You will pay for the guilt that you have before a holy God, it's not that you might be, you're already accused. We've covered that. You are accused by the law of God and you will stand before a holy God on this judgment day. You will stand before the king. You will stand before the magistrate. He will judge you and you will, he will throw you in prison. This picture of prison, we know this, and I'm gonna show us in just a second from Revelation that there is a picture of, of this prison. This prison is, is hell. It's not just a, I'm gonna be behind bars for a little bit and then eventually I'll get out when I spend my time, the only thing that you and I have to pay with is our soul, our eternity, everything, forever. That's all we have. And that's why he gives this, the best picture of, of, of their currency that he could possibly give. He says, verse 59, look at verse 59. As we see the, the prison, we see that you will be in this prison. He says, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid, every, paid the very last penny. The Greek word for penny is lepton or leptos. It's, it's equivalent to an eighth of the American penny. Very, very worthless, essentially. It's very, very worthless. But it's a small, thin copper coin. If you remember the, the widow who went and she gave all that she had, she gave a copper coin she gave a penny, essentially. It was very, very worthless, especially in, in the eyes of the religious elite who were saying, I'm giving all, all this. Look at all the money I'm giving. And all she's given is this little copper coin that's essentially worthless, but it's all that she had. That's the, the equivalent that we have. It a poor widow. She gave everything that she had. This copper coin is essentially worthless. It's not much. But he's saying that you will be there till you pay every last penny. There are several pictures in in the New Testament that we see a final judgment, but I'm just gonna cover one. Revelations 20, verses 12 through 15. I want us to look closely at this and notice that there are books. We're gonna see books here, books with our deeds written in them, books, and there's another book. There's one other book, the book of life, with the names of those who are actually in Christ. So there are many books, but there's one that actually truly shows that, hey, this person's debt is paid. then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if, anyone, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is this prison that Jesus is referring to. That's what it is, lake of fire. It's also referred to in the New Testament as a, a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place where there is an unquenchable fire, meaning it will never go out, a place where there is this worm that is never filled, meaning it will continue and continue to eat. It's a miserable, scary, scary place. That's, that's what he's saying. This is the prison. That's why it's so urgent. That's why it's so dire. Pay attention. You are guilty. That's what he's saying. This place is not pretty. So settle with your accuser. It's urgent. That's what he's saying. Settle with your accuser before you go to the magistrate because once you are there, if you have not settled with your accuser, he's going to give you the officer and you're going to go to prison and this is what it is. This is what prison is. That's what he's saying. Paul gives us this understanding of of this payment so that we can get away from, from hell, get away from this prison and be forever and eternity with God so that we can truly be in, in God's glory, Romans six twenty three, Paul says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. We see that there is a wage, our sin, our debt, our threat, our guilt before God is sin. We've already been accused by the law because of our sin. He said there, there, that's your wage, your sin is death. That prison, that's where you'll be thrown. Your sin is death, that's what you get, that's what you get paid for. You get paid for your sin and your sin is death. But he says, but there is a free gift of God and eternal life, which is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is a but, there is a way, there is a way to settle with your accuser. And there's a free gift of life. You will not be thrown in prison. It will be paid in full. Every last penny will be paid is what he's saying. In Romans six twenty three. the payment is required for our sin. There is a way to settle with your accuser. And as we look From what everything that we've covered today from our our main points, we're about to close, but just stay with me. There, the main point that we had was a refusal to repent and be reconciled to God. Or we could we could say that they failed to identify the threat, to see the threat, and to repent from it. These were great warnings from Jesus. Great dire warnings that that required an urgent response. An urgent response. You must not delay. We will all settle with their accuser, one way or the other whether you go before the magistrate or whether you truly repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe by faith in what he has said. This is why Jesus and John the Baptist, when they first started their ministries, the very first things that they said when they started was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We see that in Matthew 3, 2 and 4, 17. They both said the same thing, word for word. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand because Christ was there. They missed to identify and interpret the present time where the Christ was dwelling among them, was performing signs and miracles among them, was doing many signs, and was proving that, hey, I am the Messiah. And then they definitely missed the threat, the guilt before a holy God. The only way that we can settle with our accuser, this is the beauty of the gospel. We cover it every week because we don't wanna forget it. We want people who come in here who may have missed the mark, who may not see their guilt before a holy God, to understand that the gospel is the only way to truly settle with your accuser. It's the only way. I was reading earlier in, in a, a doctrine book, actually, since Sam's got us on, on doctrines on Sunday nights. It's, it's amazing to see uh, the beauty that's, that's in these uh, books of seeing the doctrines. But I was looking at the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of man and the doctrine of sin. And if you look through the, the entire Bible, you'll only see two chapters, and four verses total where sin and sinners are not addressed at all. That means that the rest of the Bible addresses it. That's pretty serious. The entire Bible minus two chapters and I mean two four chapters and two books. Everywhere else sin and sinners are addressed. That means it's urgent, it's important. He wants you to see it. Genesis 1 to 2 and Revelation's 21 to 22 are the only areas that we see that. It's crazy to see that. That's amazing eye-opening. God wants us to see that. He wants us to see the threat. He wants us to see our guilt. And he wants us to see the only way that it is possible to settle with our accuser is through the gospel. In Ephesians 2, we see that. We see that we were transgressors before God. And then he goes on, but God being rich in mercy, by his great love that he has shown us, that we can be saved I'm paraphrasing, but, but that we can be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not a gift, this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. This is a free gift by God through grace that when you truly repent and truly settle with your accuser, you will be saved from your sins. The guilt is real, the guilt is there. Settle with your accuser. There is a guilt that we have to pay for. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time, Lord. Thank you for your word, Father. It is, it is heavy, it is deep, Lord. Is definitely inexhaustible, um, but Father, we thank you so much, Lord, that we have uh, it's so readily available to us, Lord, that we can uh, go before you, that we can identify and recognize our guilt before you. I pray, Lord, that no one in here, no one uh, to come by, will will fail to interpret uh, the threat. Lord, that we will all identify our guilt, that we are all accused before you, the holy God, Lord, and that we will, uh, we will live for you for the rest of our days. I pray that would be true of everybody in this room, everybody in, uh, in this area, Lord. Thank you, we love you, in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.